Um, let me just see a, a show of hands this morning. Uh, how many of you love movies involving horses? I know you're going to say yes. Okay. All right. Horse. Got some horse people. How many of you love movies that deal with the supernatural? You know, you, you Ewans were kind of noncommittal in the first service too. You're, you're not sure about that. What about guns and war? Love that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how, how about uh, lots of bloodshed, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or some no slashers here? That's good. We're, I'm happy to hear that. What about uh, movies that um, kind of feature instead of guns, uh, swords and knives and things of that nature? Okay, lances and okay, good. Uh, how many love movies about natural disasters, where you know the whole world gets flooded or frozen or bad things happen to lots of people, mass slaughter? And yeah, okay, all right, good. Well, you people are sick, I think, um, but thank you for sharing that. Book of Revelation, people. That's where we are. Um, this morning we're talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, so you horse people are going to love this. In the last two chapters, uh, four and five, uh, we saw the apostle John who received the resolu- res- resolution. What? I can't even talk today. Received the revelation from the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Uh, John, who is our tour guide through the book of Revelation, was called up and caught up into heaven, into the very throne room of God. And there he sees God himself seated on a throne, um, surrounded by a rainbow of emerald color. Um, John talks about sights and sounds surrounding the throne are four what are referred to as four living creatures. Some of you have an older translation like the King James version. It's going to say beasts, but the word there is zoon, like zoology. It just refers to living creatures. And so more modern translations put it that way, the four living creatures. These four living creatures are worshipers. They're always worshiping the Lord. They're also worship leaders. And those whom they lead immediately are 24 elders who are sitting around the throne, themselves on 24 thrones. Each of them wears a victor's crown, a crown like a crown of laurel leaves, um, probably golden, dressed in white garments, representing redemption and righteousness. And in chapter 4, John is just overwhelmed with the sights and the sounds of heaven. And the theme that's introduced right away in chapter 4, in heaven is worship. Worship. In chapter 5, which we explored together last week, John witnessed Jesus Christ introduced there as both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain, uh, taking from him, uh, from the right hand of the one seated on the throne, uh, a, a scroll sealed with seven seals, which is the title deed to Jesus Christ's inheritance of the universe. And and so being worshipped then by millions upon millions of angels. Now we sang earlier, a million angels fall, but there were millions of millions of angels that fall, fall down and worship Jesus Christ. Every creature in heaven and earth worships him as the only one in all of heaven and all of earth and under the earth to be worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, to open it 
and to read it. And we're going to see the the beginning of the breaking of those seals this morning in the first part of chapter 6. Additionally, and importantly, preceding and in some sense coinciding with John being caught up into heaven, a significant event occurred unannounced between chapters 3 and 4 that is known as the rapture of the church, known that way in in uh, other parts of the scriptures. This is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to his disciples. And it's recorded in John 14, 2 and 3, when he said, In my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's the same event that Paul described uh, in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, The rapture of the church represents the point at which the whole church, uh, the church of the ages, both living and dead, is, is removed from the world, taken up into heaven, and a new era of human history begins on the earth. And this is evidenced by several indicators, not least among them, uh, the fact that from chapter 4 on, uh, there is no further mention of the church at all until chapter 18, or 19 rather, where the church reappears in heaven as the bride of Christ, uh, what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything in the remainder of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 through chapter 18 describes scenes on the earth, but only from the vantage point of heaven. What's happening in the heavens affects directly what is happening on the earth. So where we are, as we continue our tour at the start of chapter 6, is this, and we're going to look at the beginning of the opening of the seals. I found it helpful in understanding the progress of this complex book, to see it on a kind of timeline. So I've prepared a diagram for you, um, so you can kind of see the flow of things. You see the resurrection of Jesus there. He's on the earth for 40 days, after which he ascends into heaven. And then comes the church age. That's the age we are in right now. That's the age represented in Revelation 1 through 3. Uh, at the end of the church age, as we were just, as I was just saying, Jesus raptures the church. We're taken to heaven. We will be with him uh, forever, never to be separated again. And that's detailed in Revelation 4 and 5. And now here we are right here at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, Revelation 6 through 18. And so that's, that's 13 chapters uh, of out of 22 that deal with the tribulation period. So understand that most of the book of Revelation has to do with the tribulation, what the Bible calls the tribulation period. Well, what is that seven-year tribulation? We'll we'll see more about this in the coming weeks and months, but allow me to put a frame around this for us. In the 6th century BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated Israel 
carried away most of the population of Israel um, to exile and slavery in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Uh, During that time, God raised up a prophet named Daniel uh, and promoted him to a place of prominence in Babylon. The Old Testament book of Daniel was written by him. In chapter 9 of that book, we read of the angel Gabriel visiting him and giving him a prophecy that involved a period that included 70 weeks. 70 weeks, taken to mean seven, 70 periods of seven years. Not 70 periods of seven days, but 70 periods of seven years of God's agenda for Israel and for all of humanity. The first 69 uh, weeks began, um, according to the word of Gabriel, the angel, uh, with the command by King Artaxerxes to, for the people to return to rebuild Jerusalem. They end with Messiah the Prince, Jesus, entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, 483 years later, to the day. To the day. After the initial 69 weeks, or 483 years, there's there's an observable, uh, indefinite period of time that passes before the beginning of the final week of seven years. In other words, the 70th week is in discontinuity with the first 69 It stands alone in history. And it's this seven-year period that is uh, sometimes referred to as Daniel's 70th week that's that's viewed as coinciding with this tribulation period that uh, we're about to explore. And and that's going to include the appearance of a powerful prince. Uh, Not in this case Jesus, but um, a ruler that will come. And this ruler will establish a deceptive covenant of peace with the people of Israel. Uh, he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But in the middle of those seven years, uh, he's going to put an end to the sacrifice and the offering that's taking place in that temple. And he's going to set himself up as a God to be worshiped and obeyed. In Daniel 9.27, Gabriel calls him the one who makes desolate. The one who makes desolate. The the second half of those seven years then are going to be a time of death and destruction and misery unparalleled in the history of the world. The prophet Jeremiah seemed to be referring to these seven years when he wrote in chapter 30, verse 7 of his prophecy, Alas! That day is so great that there is none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. He shall be saved out of it. We're informed just a few verses earlier that that this day of Jacob's distress will take place following the restoration of the people of Israel and Judah to the land of Israel. Notice Jeremiah 30, verse 3. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. When you see the names Israel and Judah together, 
realize is talking about the whole nation of Israel. For a period of time, there was a divided kingdom. And so hence the two different names. But the restoration of the the Jewish people to the land uh, took place in 1948 when they became again a, a, a nation state. Modern state of Israel came into existence. They took possession of the land. And and in that sense, the stage is now set for the rapture of the church and and the arrival of those seven years of tribulation on the earth. Jesus said regarding the coming tribulation, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now remember what Jeremiah said, Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be, yet he shall be saved out of it. Yet he shall be saved out of it. And the tribulation period will, will be catastrophic on every level. And yet out of it, Israel will be saved. Paul wrote of this in Romans 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, I believe that the rapture of the church uh, will signal the close of God's agenda for the Gentiles that began on the day of Pentecost and and the mission of the church uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's, it's, it's going to serve as the indicator that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, that the majority of those who are going to believe in Christ uh, before the rapture um, will have believed. And as Paul said there in verse 25, the tribulation period will be about the salvation of the Jews. As God uses uh, this time of incredible hardship, unbelievable, horrific hardship uh, to soften and change their hearts so that they at last will turn in faith to their true and only Messiah, Jesus Christ. Returning now to Revelation chapter 6, I want to add one more point of reference uh, that I think will be helpful for you. Uh, It is for me. In Revelation 6, 1 through 17, go ahead and, okay, so there's that. Seven seals, um, 
Jesus breaking these seals on the scroll in order, opening each part of the scroll. And then in Revelation 8, 2 through 9, 21, there are seven trumpets being blown by uh, seven angels announcing seven consecutive additional judgments on the earth. And then in Revelation um, 16, 1 through 21, we're going to read about seven bowls uh, held by seven angels. And those bowls are poured out on the earth in the form of plagues that will that will come upon the earth. And these are the final expressions of the wrath of God. The destruction that they bring on the earth will be total and will be final. But what I want you to understand, uh, see and understand, is that the seventh of each of these um, distinct series of future judgments not only brings that series to a close, but also opens a new vision in which the next series begins. And so in the seventh seal is contained the seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bulls. Um, if you're so inclined, you might want to take a picture of the screen um, for future reference. You might say that in the seventh seal is contained both the seven trumpets and the seven bulls. Well, then stand with me. Let's read our scripture text for this morning. Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with the voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, one of the first things you'll notice is that John's telling of the breaking of the first four seals follows a a similar repeated pattern. Number one, Christ breaks the seal. Uh, Number two, one of the four living creatures cries out, come, Uh, a colored horse and its rider third come onto the scene. And then fourth, a description is given of the activity of the rider of each horse. So this morning, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, 
beginning with the white horse. And again, Revelation 6, 1 to 2, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So as as we're examining the scriptures, you know, we should always be asking questions. And so a question arises with regard to the command, Come. In each of these four instances, to whom is the living creature giving the command? Come. Is it to John? Uh, to come and see, as the King James and various other translations have it? Uh, or is the command given to the horse and its rider? Um, giving them permission to step forward. Surprisingly, the word come can also be translated go. You know, go go figure. <laughs> it can be translated go, depending on the context. And one commentator said that we might take the word in this instance as something like proceed, um, carry on, get on with it. And that would make some sense since each writer comes to accomplish a specific evil purpose. Uh, The white horse and its rider are introduced at the opening of the first seal. A white horse is often associated with one who is a ruler. And yet the crown given to this rider of this white horse is not a diadem, the regal crown of royalty. On the contrary, John instead saw a Stephanos, a victor's crown, on his head. We've talked uh, a lot already in this series about the Stephanos, the victor's crown, Um, in those days, it was like the crown given to uh, uh, the winner or the gold medalist in the Olympic Games. Uh, so it's a victor's crown. It's one who has, has won something. This particular rider of the, white horse is, of the white horse is carrying a bow. So another question arises. Did John mean for us to assume that the rider also had arrows to fire from that bow, which are not mentioned? Or uh, did he mean for us to make note of the irony of the absence of any mention of arrows? A bow without arrows. The the last thing that John says of him in verse 2 is that he came out conquering and to conquer. How do you do that without arrows? Does he intend a a conquest that, that does not require the shedding of blood? Because he's on a white horse, the mount of a conqueror, and seems to come in peace. Some have confused this writer in verses one and two, one to two, with Jesus Himself. It's especially so because in chapter nineteen, before the final battle, Jesus Himself appears on a white horse. The striking contrast, however, is that on His head is not just one crown, but many. And not victor's crowns, not Stephanos, but diadems, royal diadems, the regal crowns of a king. Remember the old hymn, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. So the idea of a a bloodless conquest coincides perfectly with what Gabriel told Daniel that the prince who is to come in Daniel 9.25 will come at first in peace. And he's going to make a short-term, 
deceptive covenant with the people of Israel, which he will eventually break in the middle of the seven years. And this is among the reason that most among the reasons that most biblical scholars identify the rider of the white horse with the person who is called the Antichrist. The Antichrist. So let's think about that person for just a moment. We we most often think of the label Antichrist as meaning against Christ, opposed to Christ. Uh, and, And that's accurate in part. But its primary meaning is in place of Christ. The Antichrist who is to come will be a pseudo-Christ, a, a pretender, one who presumes to, to supersede Christ to take his place. So the tribulation period is going to begin with a false peace accompanied by counterfeit spirituality and false religion. Matthew records in chapter 24 of this gospel that as he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. The Apostle Paul warned the believers in Thessalonica, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know, we we may wonder if the Antichrist is alive in the world today. I'm asked that question frequently. Uh, It may be somewhat interesting to speculate on who currently on the world scene he might be. Um, But I want to remind you of three things in regard to that. First of all, uh, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in the world today. In fact, uh, John, in his first epistle known as First John, um, just a few books ahead of Revelation, um, deals with that in depth, the spirit of Antichrist. Secondly, the person who will be that spirit of Antichrist personified, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, will not be revealed until sometime after the rapture of the church. And third, if you've trusted in Christ, you won't even be here when he is revealed. You're going to be in paradise with the Lord and with his church. So just quit asking me the question. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's okay to speculate. Fact is, we don't know. And sometimes people will say, you know, is, 
is this former president? Do you think he's you think he's the Antichrist, or or the Pope? Do you think he's the Antichrist? And and, and my answer usually is, as I think about you know who who it is that they're nominating to be the Antichrist, um, most of the time I, my answer is this: that person is not persuasive enough. There are not enough people following that person. That person is not smooth, slick, persuasive enough. Just not the right person. Uh, this guy's going to be a uniter like we've never seen. And uh, a lot of people are going to be deceived by him. Immediately uh, after the rider on the white horse brings in false religion and false peace, the rider on the red horse comes to disrupt that peace. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The same general condition was described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, where he wrote, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It may be interesting to note that the word red, as in red horse, actually means a kind of a fiery orange red, uh, symbolizing the fire and the blood of war. And notice that word permitted. It tells us that even though things may seem to be going from bad to worse on the earth, even beginning to spiral out of control, God remains in sovereign control of all things. Now, each of these horses and riders can do only what God allows them to do. They can only go as far as God allows them to go. The rider on the white horse carried a bow with no arrows. The rider on the red horse carries a great sword. Uh, he will most likely have access to the most powerful military weaponry known to man. And just think about the advances in military technology that we know about, uh, that we've read about or that we've seen unveiled, uh, let alone all of that which is still secret but, but exists, Right? The large sword that he wields could be, could refer to nuclear capability or a dagger or everything in between. Even something more potent. In his commentary on Revelation, H.A. Ironside offered what I thought was an insightful thought. He said, the first effort in the, the world that, that we have left behind will be to bring in universal peace apart from Christ. But, it will end in universal bloody warfare greater far than has ever been known. And I think that's an interesting thought. I mean, it's interesting to imagine people saying, good, all those Christians are gone. We don't have to deal with them. We don't have to deal with Jesus anymore. And now we can enjoy some real peace. Not so fast, right? Not so fast. What was the rider on the red horse permitted to do? ESV says, uh, the English Standard Version says, to take peace from the earth. How will he do that? It says he causes people to slay each other. And the Greek word translated slay here connotes violent murder, even wholesale slaughter. The word actually means slaughter. 
And just think about that on a widespread scale. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6 and 7, that, that one of the signs of his coming would be wars and rumors of wars as nations rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But we're not talking here with the red horse, the rider of the red horse, uh, only about armed conflict between nation states. We're talking about something far more widespread than that. We're talking about violent assaults between family members, uh, between neighbors, between students and teachers, between co-workers, between employers, between business people and politicians, and, and any relational group you can name will be characterized, marked by extreme violence. Uh, it's perhaps not hard for us to imagine as we're already an increasingly violent society and world. And while you're reflecting, remember that during the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will have been taken out of the world by virtue of the fact that the church in which the Spirit resides will have been taken out of the world. So whatever restraining moral influence that the Spirit and the church imposed on societies, and I I imagine it's huge, much larger than we imagine. All of that will be gone. Enter the black horse. When the lamb broke the third seal and the living creature cried, Come, a black horse and a rider galloped onto the scene. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Now I've heard several commentators who identify the, the black horse and its rider with famine. And I think that's largely accurate. But, but don't miss that whatever starvation will occur, whatever famine comes into existence, will have... Uh, economic causes, economic roots. Notice from which direction the voice in verse 6 came. It came from the midst of the four living creatures. Well, where are they? They're, they're right around the throne, aren't they? So was it the voice of an angel? Or was it the voice of God himself? A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. Is it a sovereign decree? Or the mere observation of an angel? Of what was taking place on earth? Either way. One commentator wrote that the prices listed here. Are about 8 to 16 times the average prices in the Roman Empire at the time. A denarius um, symbolizes a a day's wages. Uh, So just imagine that. The commentator goes on, Therefore those suffering from the famine will only be able to buy limited food quantities for their family, and there will be nothing left over to provide for any other of the necessities of life, such as wine and oil. We only have to look to the past few years here in the United States 
to see and understand how quickly a healthy economy can be subverted and, and prices can be sent soaring. There have been a few periods, haven't there, of, of time in the history of our nation during which the economy has crashed, uh, resulting in financial depression, human suffering. And again, Jesus listed among the signs that will precede his coming, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Later in the seven years of tribulation, John says that the Antichrist causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. See, we're already hearing these days of frequent warnings from several quarters of a coming severe food shortage in America. So what is described here in chapter 13, verses 16 to 17, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, was almost impossible to imagine. How how could such a program be implemented? Um, but not anymore, right? Chip technology um, can accomplish exactly what's being described here. Uh, and implantation of chips uh, in animals is pretty widespread now. And also some humans are being chipped. It's not hard to imagine. So think about an exploding population with a diminished capacity to produce food. And the Antichrist's answer will be, hey, just take my mark and I'll take care of you. Let me just say that if you happen to delay your decision to follow Jesus, to trust in him as your savior, until after the, the, the rapture of the church, a time in which it will be much more difficult than it is now to become a Christian and to live as a Christian. If you hear a person say, take my mark on your forehead or on your right hand, don't you do it. Because reading on in Revelation, it tells us that those who have taken the mark will be condemned to hell. Finally, the pale horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Uh, Just for clarification for you children of the 70s, the rider of the pale horse is not to be confused with Clint Eastwood. Just, just so you know. As the command to come is given that fourth time, a pale horse walks up. The, the Greek word translated pale here is interesting. It's the word chloros. And immediate, immediately you'll think of chloride and chlorine. Uh, chloros. In, in the world, world of botany, gardening, uh, there is a condition that some plants succumb to that's called chlorosis. That's because I'm a gardener. That's that's the first word I thought of, chlorosis. Actually, I'm just a wannabe gardener. 
But but it's most often the result of an iron deficiency that, that reveals itself in the discoloration of leaves. And so when a plant has chlorosis, it, it's normally green leaves turn a sickly yellow. So if that happens to your plants at home, just add a little iron. Uh, I, I was not surprised then uh, to learn that there's also a condition in the world of nutrition called chlorosis, which is uh, an anemia, apparently also caused by iron deficiency. And the most common sufferers are adolescent girls, and it causes kind of a, a, a pale, faintly greenish complexion. So the pale chlorotic horse represents death. It represents death. It's His rider's name is Death. Uh, together with Hades, they make a, a nasty little tag team. They are Death and Hades, Death and Hell personified. Death slays the body. Hades swallows up the soul. And they were given authority, John says, over a fourth of the earth. Think about that. A fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When the pale horse and its rider are sent out, their means of murder will first of all be the sword. And again, this could could represent any number of weapons from primitive to very high tech used in any kind of armed conflict you can name. And famine, again, death by malnutrition, death by starvation, pestilence, sickness, illness, perhaps a a powerful pandemic or multiple pandemics at one time. Fourth, wild beasts. And perhaps they too, you think about that, are made ravenously hungry by the same famine. And they seek to satisfy that hunger by attacking and eating human beings. A weaponized animal kingdom like never before. Amir Tsarfati said that lions and tigers and bears will not be just a cute little ditty. It will be a warning that parents give to their children before they exit the house. Well, do do some math with me. At the end of 2023, the world population was just over 8 billion people. 8 billion. The rider of the pale horse will kill a fourth of the world's population. So if the rapture was to take place next week and the tribulation period was to begin shortly thereafter, the death toll would be about 2 billion people. For comparison, as of yesterday, the number who have died worldwide of the coronavirus, COVID-19, was just under 7 million. Now that's a, a staggering figure, isn't it? People who have died, 7 million dead from the pandemic. It represents enormous tragic loss. But understand this, that it is less than one half of 1% of 2 billion. Again, Jesus foretold it. And every bit of it is under God's sovereign control. For nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated. By the way, the you here, I think, is the Jewish people. I think that's what he's describing. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's important, I think, that we observe together that in the breaking of the first four seals and the successive openings of the scroll, the world is facing a time of trouble unlike anything it's ever known before. Jesus called them in that passage I just read, the beginning of birth pains. And as those next three seals will be broken, and we'll see this next week, as the trumpets sound, as as bowls of plagues are poured out on the earth, it's going to get progressively worse beyond our wildest, horrified imaginations. John Wolverd wrote that the dream of the optimist for a world becoming increasingly better, scientifically, intellectually, morally, and religiously, does not fit the pattern of God's prophetic word. The ultimate triumph of God is assured, and as the book of Revelation makes plain, Christ will reign over the earth and bring in a kingdom of peace and righteousness after the time of trouble has run its course. First, however, there must be the awful time of the great tribulation. It's also important for us to realize that in the breaking of the seals and and the progressive opening and progressively opening the scroll, Jesus is reclaiming his inheritance. We saw that last week that this seven sealed scroll is probably represents a the la, a last will and testament, if you will. Jesus is reclaiming his inheritance, and in order to do that, he needs to evict the squatters. You know about evicting squatters, don't you, Leela? Satan is the the current ruler of this world, but he reigns over a temporary kingdom. His days are numbered. In order to take full control of his inheritance, Jesus, the king, has to root out and deal with every source of opposition to his rule and reign. Wickedness deserves to be judged, and God is absolutely just and fair in punishing evil. Yet at the same time, he's also gracious. He's also merciful. He continually tempers his wrath and demonstrates mercy. And and we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation a number of uh, interludes, brief um, kind of breaks in the action in which God allows people the opportunity to repent and and. To, to return to him. You know, as I've been watching a news coverage of the, uh, the Israelis' war against Hamas in Gaza, uh, I've seen what I think is a helpful parable for understanding the severe violence and bloodshed, sickness and misery that are going to characterize uh, the seven years on earth that are detailed from heaven in chapters 6 to 18. The enemy is deeply entrenched and extremely resistant. Consequently, every room in every structure, every hole in the ground, every tunnel, every tower has to be entered and every terrorist either killed or captured. 
And I've heard many of the spokespeople for the Israeli Defense Forces uh, and the State of Israel describe this war not just uh, as a physical and military one, but rather as an ongoing spiritual battle. They sense the spiritual dimension. That's a great parallel to the book of Revelation. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, as I was reflecting this week on these first four seals, a song came to mind that I haven't thought about in a good long time. It was written and recorded by a guy named Larry Norman back in 1969. Some of you weren't even alive then. Uh, it became, many of you saw the movie The Jesus Revolution. Uh, this song became one of the best known songs of the uh, the Jesus movement, the early days of the Jesus movement. The lyrics were inspired by the book of Revelation and the first part of it went like this. Life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. I wonder this morning, have you believed in Jesus? Have you surrendered your life? Have you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ? When Jesus comes to rapture the church, will you be ready? Or will you be left behind? The horrific events we're reading about as the seven seals are broken, as God's wrath is unleashed against sinful humanity and against Satan and his angel are are things that really will happen. And they're going to happen right here on earth. They're going to happen in Olympia, Washington. And no one's life will be untouched, not even yours, if you're still here on earth. I want to invite you to to call out to God from your heart today. To confess your sin, ask him to come into your life, cleanse you from the inside out and make you new again. Ask him to remember you when he comes for his church. Maybe you're a believer today and you're clinging tightly to a sin or a sin pattern in your life and you know that you need to repent of that because it's dishonoring to God. It's interfering with your relationship with him. I, I want to encourage you to confess that sin to him sin to Him this morning, uh, to resolve before the Lord to repent of it, to make an intentional 180 degree turn away from it. God will help you. Bible says that he will give us not only the desire to do what he wants, but the power to do it. Or maybe there's something else that you'd like prayer for this morning, a sickness, an injury, a relationship, a, a decision you need to make, or, or anything else. Someone will be here following the service is willing to pray with you about anything that's on your mind and heart. I want to pray for you right now. Let's bow together. Lord, as we read these things in your word, it's 
hard to make our minds accept it because it's so horrific as we understand it. And we know that it will be. And we know that you are a righteous judge. That you poured out your wrath once on your son Jesus. And that all of those who put their trust in him receive forgiveness because he bore your wrath in our place. He is our wrath absorber. But for those who reject your son, Jesus, your wrath remains. And so I pray today for those who are in this room, for those who may be watching online, who don't have the confidence that their sins are forgiven, that they've received from you the gift of eternal life through faith in your son. I pray that today will be the day that they will turn, repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and receive the gift of sins forgiven, reconciliation with God, eternity secured. Lord, we want to be pure and holy people, ready for your return, a righteous bride, dressed in white, ready to receive you when you come. So will you help us? Each of us has deep sin patterns in our lives, habits that are hard to break, difficult to repent of. Lord, that's why we are so desperately in need of your mercy and your grace, because we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Help us, Lord. We look forward to the day that we'll hear that cry of command, the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and and we'll be caught up to meet you in the clouds and so forever be with you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.